tonight I would like to, oops, I'm supposed to turn it on. <laughs> there. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Tonight I'd like to talk about um, the truth of vulnerability and that the relationship with the truth the truth of vulnerability with love and kindness and wisdom. So I will probably go over a few things that we've already talked about, but hopefully kind of bring them in a little bit um, more into the realm of wisdom. So the first night that I talked, I talked about how love permeated with understanding or permeated with wisdom is what we would describe as loving kindness. And Stephen and I often talk about metta as like the fabric of the universe. It, it's like it's what's holding us. And that, that feeling of being held in a hammock, it, it is that sense of um, it's what hold, holds us and gives us enough softness and courage to be able to face how things are, which is the wisdom side of practice. There's a great Indian saint, uh, Srina Zargadatta, who said, love tells me I'm everything, and wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two my life flows. And that between the two, my life flows. It's very remarkable. You know, it's so um, wise. So it's not like one is picking and choosing one or the other is more valuable. You know, it's like it's saying that, that they're both equally valuable. Seeing oneself in another and another in oneself. Love. Understanding that the, the realization of what love truly is, is sharing. Realization is sharing. So the wisdom tells me I'm nothing part is tends to be something we often aren't as attracted to. <laughs> the love tells me of everything is often much more attractive for us. So the wisdom tells me I'm nothing is um, what the mindfulness practice is meant to help us face again and again. So one of the first um, insights and also insight all the way to full enlightenment is understanding the fleetingness of life or the impermanence of life. And then it said, because of that impermanence or fleetingness, which is all on the wisdom tells me I'm nothing side, uh, there is uh, an unreliability, dukkha, an unreliability to experience, unsatisfactoriness to experience, uncontrollability of experience. This is again all on the wisdom side. The wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And then 
anatta, atta is self, anatta is, is the insight into that is considered the most difficult. Um, and again, just as when I described the mindfulness and the aspects of mindfulness, the RAIN acronym, as something that we can't command. Uh, when we describe these insights, as Steve says, there's a wisdom intelligence, there's a meta-intelligence, and there are times when we just, because we're so fully present, that we drop into the wisdom, that we drop into the understanding. So we can, it's like we fall into the understanding that um, no matter how hard you look, you can't find something separate or solid. Uh, and that, you know, the, the deeper understanding with this is that sense that um, thoughts aren't mine or yours or ours or our body isn't mine. You know, we start to see it as a transforming process of earth, air, fire, and water, for example. Or emotions aren't mine. Um, they're, they're flowing by, like... There is nothing like uh, meditating by a stream. You know, just just being able to hear it, but getting that sense of uh, row, row, row your boat <laughs> gently down the stream. It's a great practice. Merrily, 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 merrily. That's the meta part. <laughs> life is but a dream. You know, it's that that life is but a dream. So, as Steve said, that we get glimpses of loving-kindness, that genuine, pure, unconditional love. Uh, And when it's pure, it's because we're not using the metta to control. So with body pain, the the genuineness of the metta is that the effort is going into the unconditional love, not the conditional uh, but as you do the practice, you're going to see the conditional. You're meant to. So when we see the conditional, for example, when we see the aversion to the pain or wanting to get rid of it, the aversion to the pain, the attachment to the pleasure, be careful of thinking that that's bad practice. It's like being able to see the controller and the controlled subject, object. It's like that. That's the whole misperception uh, that we we actually can't control very much. Um, so it's the belief that we can control that causes a lot of doubt and self-hatred and worry. Honolulu, where I lived for 23 years, is, is you know, it's I think it's considered maybe the second in America for traffic. I think maybe Honolulu has beat New York City finally, but it's really <clears throat> something else. And there's only one road. So if you um, are heading somewhere, uh, and uh, for many years where Stephen and I lived, they were working on the highway, and they finally had to put in a hotline where you could call and find out kind of what you were going to be dealing with that day. And they, they, they'd had a person on the line that had this most soothing voice. You know, it would just be like, hello. <laughs> Why 
wonderful day today, isn't it? And then, you know, he'd, he'd say, and if you're heading into Honolulu City today, um, you've got problems. <laughs> a minor backup was one hour, and a, a medium backup was two hours, and a major backup was three hours. Very, very common for a three-hour backup. I know, and Chandra... Our daughter was 15 when this started, and, you know, 15-year-old likes to go places, right? And sometimes I would go three hours in and three hours out, <laughs> three hours in, three hours out, and it would be like, ah. Oh. And I started doing these beginner's classes around that period of time, and it was so interesting because people were really stressed out from it, and just kind of the whole sense of being mindful through that process is um, great practice on timelessness, right, versus being caught in time and controller versus just realizing when there's no other road, you know, you either don't go or you go, you go for the ride. And I remember one time when we were teaching a retreat up in the back of a valley about normally it would be probably a 20-minute ride with no traffic. Um, and we lived in a way that you had to drive up two roads to get onto the highway. Uh, and this morning I left thinking I had plenty of time and I couldn't, I couldn't even get onto the road that went to another road. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is serious. And I managed to get on the highway. And I just, I was, I tend to be like the overly responsible type. And I kept thinking, oh my God, all the yogis are up there waiting, you know, like for the morning's instructions. And three hours it took me, maybe more. I think it maybe took five because it turned out that it was, um, it was the day Nixon died and the mayor decided to um, give everybody off like the, from, from work and school. But everybody had started. So everybody was out there going to school and you know going to work, and it was just this massive gridlock. And I was sitting there in my car, going, <laughs> "Nixon is still haunting me." You know, it was so much fun. And then I just like I had to finally go, "Oh, unpleasant. Oh, it's just unpleasant. It's okay. It's just going to be a long ride." And, you know, this is what we forget, you know, in the ups and downs of a day of practice. Like, it's important to look at, well, when we're struggling, what is going on? And there's usually a hidden object. There's usually we're either wanting something to be happening that isn't happening or trying to get rid of something that we don't think should be happening. So I'll go into that more in a bit. But it's like... um, that belief that we can control what we can't control is where the Buddha said um, we can really get liberated. The understanding of this pleasure-pain syndrome and understanding we don't have to be caught in it is liberation. There was a certain point in my life where I met this teacher named Deepama, and uh, she had this enormous capacity to give blessings. 
And she just had perfected metta. And she would bless the airplane that she was on. She'd bless, you know, the people in the plane. She'd bless everything. She'd bless, you know, the trees. She'd bless everything. And if you just went up in front of you, she would just bless you. And sometimes she'd just put her hands like a shower of metta. Um, and I remembered the impact of this was so strong because they, she was known to have... Um, uh, attained third stage of enlightenment, but she was really free of aversion and attachment. And there was a fragrance. There, it was actually, I don't mean like you can smell it as like you could smell a rose, but you could smell um, <coughs> the love and kindness. And you could smell the purity of it. You could smell the unconditional aspect of it because it wasn't like she was blessing like an um, eagle and was kind of poo-pooing a robin because there's so many of them, right? You know how we can we can just like think, well, oh, this is beautiful and special because it's rare. Or I like this person, but I don't like this person. It wasn't like that with her. It was just unconditional for everything. Um, and I really had the sense, wow, if she can do this, I can do this. You know, it was that strong. And also, she was a householder, and she would bring her daughter with her to help translate, and her daughter would bring her little um, son, and they would stay in this um, little trailer across the street from where, where we were teaching. And, the, you know, the grandson would be running around screaming, and the, her daughter would have soap operas on, and Deepa would just sit there in the most profound spaces. You know, it just totally didn't depend on outer circumstance. So when we look at our own capacity for loving kindness, one of the things that's important to realize is that it's like learning to self-bless, but it's also like your blessing. It's a powerful, powerful thing that we all can do and that is so greatly appreciated in this world. So it's like when we see or meet someone who has this capacity, it's like we're remembering our own loving kindness that's there, that's already there. We're remembering our own wisdom that's already there. There's a a teacher in Honolulu, Aiken Roshi, that died a few years ago. Uh, He was a Zen teacher. And I, I would say that we were quite opposite. Uh, he was, uh, one time when I met with him, he told me that he dreamed in black and white in the written word. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> we are different. Or, you know, like in black and white in the written word. He was very much, a, you know, an academic, an intellectual um, and somehow we became good friends. And Steve, uh, you know, and him were both born in Honolulu. So there was a, an old deep connection. Uh, and he, some of how he taught was koan practice, which is like you're, you're given a riddle to, that you can't really, you're not meant to solve intellectually. When I was eating lunch with him one day, he said, I'd like to give you a koan. And I'm like, 
That's why I never practice with you. I don't want to come on. I don't, I, I don't, no, I don't want to come on. And he's like, no, I want to give you a come on. I'm like, no. And he's like, okay. And so he said, he did it anyway. He said, how old is Kuan Yin? And I, I just didn't even want to try. Like, for me, those kind of things, just my whole being shuts down. And I'm like, well, give me a little clue. <laughs> and he's like, he said, just try. And I'm like, no. And he finally said, Okay, Michelle, how old are you? And I was like, oh, how old is Kwanya? Whatever age you would answer it would be the right answer. Because what? You know, you're Kwanyin, right? It's like that not seeing yourself as different or separate from the goddess of compassion and not seeing yourself as different or separate from the Buddha or the ponderosa pines or an ant it's like it's that deep understanding that we're not separate there's a teacher well there's a sayado like a a great habit of a monastery but the sayados in Burma are very well um, learned and um very great practitioners. You need to have both to become a Sado in Burma. Um, his name is Myotong Sado, but we tend to call him the happy Sado because he's the happiest being any of us have ever met. And one time when he described the practice of metta, um, it, it was like he really had his hand. He didn't have to say it. But he just had his hand, and you know how we will do the body scan, including the metta, with the body sensations. It's like he would—he just like was like this. This is how you do metta, <laughs> laughing. This is how you do metta. This is how you do metta. And it's just like um, so infectious, so inspiring. And I've seen, you know, so many shifts for people. Like there was a woman at a retreat we taught this spring that had so much suffering. And I could see, after I had said that, that I would see, you know, her. She was so, I think, afraid and self-conscious about this. But when she felt no one was looking, she sat way in the back of the hall and she started to go like this. Just just like a little bit like this and I could see sometimes she'd smile you know just that was that was as much that felt right but I was just like connection that's how hard it is for some of us you know just that sense of like oh you know that that However, um, we lose connection with being able to reassure ourselves. And it, this is very deep. Like, you know, if I had my way, I would hook up an IV next to each of us and just hook us, if it could be an IV of reassurance, just hook everybody up and just sit there and just have it drip in, drip, reassurance, reassurance. You know, that, that sense of where we've gotten into that we have to be perfect or we can't love ourselves, or others have to be perfect, or we can't love them. It's very, very um, big a loss. 
Oh, this is one of my favorite stories, um, and it's very, very simple. But uh, there was a a woman from Honolulu that um, whose grandmother started to die, and she went to is it North Dakota or South Dakota, Steve? North. North Dakota. Her grandma lived, and um, she ended up being there for quite a while. And there's a Benedictine monastery near where her grandmother lived. So she started going to the monastery to find some quiet and sanctuary and got to know the monks there and decided to write a book about it. And so part of writing the book, she interviewed these monks and she saved the oldest monk for last. And he had been in this monastery since he was very young. He was like 92. And she asked him, what is his biggest obstacle to God? And the best part of this is that he answered so quick. He, it didn't even go through the thought process. He, should, he just said, oh, of course, it's the other monks. <laughs> just listen to your thoughts. <laughs> you know, it's like we... Um, it would be such a gift if someone in this room would volunteer to have their mind broadcast <laughs> during one of the sittings. Really, it would be the biggest gift you could give to the world, but no one would do it. No one. Not the Dalai Lama. Not anyone. Because the human mind is the human mind. And when we're in silence, we start to feel like, you know, only we're going through whatever. But actually... If you had your neighbor broadcast, within five minutes, you would be crying. And if you just multiplied the sound of our heads and our thoughts, if you just took us in this room, just multiply your mind (laughs) by everybody's, and then you multiply it by everybody's on the planet, and you get a sense of, like, that this, this work is so important because it's noisy. I mean, we are violent. We want to be nonviolent so deeply. We want to be loving so deeply. And if you hear what's going on in our minds and that we don't have training to not believe it, you know, that most of it is like um, a kind of generic chatter. <laughs> And if you look closely at it, it's usually our, our, I call it our own system, but it's like our body, mind, heart is trying to get our attention. But we don't know how to listen well. There is a, a book I read recently about a woman who took in chimpanzees from very bad uh, Places where people were doing research on these chimps. It's a, very hard to read, very hard to face. But um, this woman tries to provide the best um, healing for the post-traumatic stress of these beings. And they're learning a lot about post-traumatic stress for humans in the process of trying to rehabilitate these chimps. Um, and one of the wonderful things that I learned in this book was this man decided to teach this chimp um, sign language and he had a a kind of blind where he could look through at her in this 
room, but she didn't know he was watching. And he saw her signing to herself. And he could actually see what she was thinking because she was talking to herself. Isn't that, like, great? I mean, you know, we're so close. I was just reading a book by Jane Goodall, but she like keeps insisting that we're very close to chimps. You know, we're we're not that far, and uh, just that sense of like, oh, it's so beautiful. And what was so interesting is that when he he started to kind of come in sometimes when she was signing to herself, and she was she was <laughs> embarrassed. You know, it's like it's that sense of our self consciousness because. We don't really want people to know what we're thinking, right? But we really don't want to know what we're thinking sometimes ourselves. And this is like, I've had so many people come into a retreat and not be used to paying attention to their thoughts and and go, you know, I thought I was a nice person. (laughs) I'm like, you are a nice person, but, you know, there's this layer. The Buddha said that there's this stream of dissatisfaction like running through the human mind. It's like this undercurrent. And you can see it by how you compare yourself with yourself. You'll compare like the last five minutes with this five minutes. So it's like that sitting was, wasn't as good as what was before. The food wasn't that good compared to what, you know. It's just that. And then if we believe it, we often have a lot of doubts. And, you know, this is this, is this, that, you know, it should be, I should be this way, or you should be this way, or experience should be this way. And if we look closely, when we get into doubt and then self-hatred attacks, it's usually because we haven't been able to control something painful. And we, we believe we should be able to control it. Uh, and we feel defeated by it, but actually if you look closely, it's because um, we were able, we got caught in the aversion to the pain. So tuning into our goodness and others' goodness beyond our thoughts about what's happening or beyond our judgments or beyond our behavior is unconditional love. Um, And as Steve said last night, the Buddha taught that the appearance of loving-kindness is is, um, the proximate cause is being able to really tune into the goodness of another. For yourself, that's always there. Years ago, Stephen and I had a student come to a retreat that um, literally, like, would shake, like, really shake. Every part of him shook, like a lot. And mostly, there would, you know, people would start moving away, so there'd be like a pretty big space around them, and uh, that went on for maybe two retreats, you know, in just one a year. And then um, I had this woman come to this retreat that he was at, and she sat right next to him. She pulled her chair right close, and I'd never witnessed anything like that. So she came in for an interview, and I said, 
why did you sit there? And uh, she was new. And she said, you know, I really felt that if he could do this, I could do this. And it was such a different way of like approaching, like being around that. It was so beautiful. And of course, this person didn't know that that was what was going on. But what was interesting is that they both shifted in this retreat. And I think it came from just that beauty of um, connection. And over over the over the last years, I've seen this person change from um, not having any sense of his own goodness to then he would call it glimpses of goodness within. And then this last year, this, like he said at the end of the retreat, with this he, just genuine, simple smile, you know, it's like I genuinely feel a lot of metta for myself and others. And it's, it's just like, that's that meta-intelligence. It's just like it happens, but it happens over time and being willing to kind of be okay with these glimpses. appreciate Krishnamurti's journals um, when he writes about his daily life and uh, one of the things he said in his journal was just to be vulnerable just to be sensitive like that new green leaf that was born yesterday to face rain, wind darkness and light And that really, he called that meditation. Just to be vulnerable, just to be sensitive, like that new green leaf that was born yesterday. And that's a very important part of this. It's just like, when we really grasp how ungraspable life really is, how fast it's moving, and and that is life, it's like it's alive. You wouldn't want to stop your breath to pay attention to it because it would kill you. You, you it's moving you know the, every every moment the body sensations are moving they're changing every moment the thoughts are changing every moment the, everything is moving it's so intense and and we're vulnerable all of us not just one being but trees clouds flowers humans ants we're all we're all sharing this aliveness um, so, tuning into this newborn moment, every moment is newborn, every moment is newborn. And then that teaching the Buddha gave us, the, the loving kindness being like a mother cow or a parent cow looking at their newborn. Again, here's this newborn, newborn. And the Buddha taught that, yes, we can actually relate to ourselves in that way. And we can relate to our neighbors in that way, just like we would with a newborn. This is before the behavior has started, really, right? 
you're, you're tuning into that goodness. If somebody brought a baby in here, most of us would be going, you know, and if the a fourteen if a fourteen year old walks in and they're sort of like, you know they're scowling, it, nobody goes oh, oh. you know it's a whole different thing, <laughs> and you know that the Buddha actually described the immeasurables that way. You know the loving kindness is like with a newborn, and Steve will go into this more. But compassion is when the child gets older. Mudita, empathetic joy when the child gets older. Equanimity when the child leaves home. Different stages of life and and so this practice of like tuning into this heart chitta consciousness that's always newborn um, it takes a lot of courage it takes a lot of kindness it takes a lot of metta Uh, my mother uh, drank a lot, <laughs> a lot, um, and one of the gifts of it was that she would play music all night in the basement, and one of her favorite musicians was Billie Holiday. Um, so I really have a lot of great music. So uh, there's a song that she's saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I don't know if you know that one. Uh, that's a good line. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Meaning, every moment, if if we're not willing to let go of the past and be in the present, you know, there's not that willingness to drop into the unknown. And this is the key part. So we're going along, we're going along. Okay, vulnerable. <laughs> okay, alive. Okay, this, that. But then the, the key to this is this willingness to be in the unknown. Because actually, each moment is unknown. Because it's alive. So that willingness to... Um, it's not so much that we have to let go of anything. And that, of course, sometimes it feels okay to say let go, but we're trying to let go before we actually experience things. So we try to let go of anger before we even know what it is, before we have a relationship with it, before we can go, oh boy, I was hoping anger would come up in this retreat so that I could get a better relationship with it. So I'm not afraid of it, so I don't get overwhelmed by it. Oh boy, I was hoping more loneliness would come up in this retreat because... You know, I don't have, like, that, you know, good a skill with it yet. Oh, boy, I was hoping for that meat hook in the back of the middle of my back. To, you know, like, that'll really help me learn how to be with physical pain a little more. Is that what you're doing? Mm-hmm. I hope so. But it's probably not, oh, boy, and I'm exaggerating. But it is that sense of, like, oh... Are we interested in our life? Are we interested in being human? And particularly our bodies. It's like our bodies do so much for us. We should be constantly saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But no, we just treat them like this thing that's like attached to our head, that's like our slave. You know, just like it's supposed to do whatever we want. You know, it's like amazing. Jump, sit, 
Now, don't have any fear. Or if you do have fear, you're only allowed it once. And then you're supposed to shut up and stop it. I already experienced you. I did 30 years of therapy. You're not allowed to come up anymore. I did 40 years of meditation. No, no, no. No, no, you're not allowed to come up anymore. That's not freedom. It's not skill. It's oppression. So kindness. Where does love and kindness fit into the mindfulness practice and wisdom? Well, if we're not kind, we're not going to be able to grow. We're not going to be able to grow into all those places that we want to just slam the door on or numb out or deny. And it's not like we have to do it quickly. So much of um, metta is patience. Metta, patience is a form of metta. And if you look at nature, you know that we are lucky to be in a place like this to practice because you just get this feedback over and over again. You know, just if you look at the um, when the rain comes. It's not in our control. Or those um, meadows of flowers that can, like if you look at them, it's like you can't help but think something is beautiful. You know, it's like there's this range of joy and sorrow. um, And it's like the process of opening to life as it is, is... It's like if you took a flower bud and it started opening. We want to open to the good stuff. This is why Krishnamurti said, the darkness, the rain, the light, right? It's like when you open, you open to day and night, not just day. You just you open to joy and sorrow, not just pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame. It's like the way of the world, gain and loss. It's like the way of the world, the way of the world the way of the world. Um, So our anger, as Steve was saying last night, our fear, our anger, our self-centered desire, our self-hatred attacks, our blaming others, are all a defense. Against what? Being vulnerable. Preferable to not knowing what's going to happen next. Preferable to not knowing when we're going to get hurt. There is a great um, theologian, C.S. Lewis. You know, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia that are well known, but he wrote a lot of things. Um, uh, but it was very hard for him to be in relationship, and he got involved in a relationship quite late in life. And uh, when he finally had the guts to sort of surrender and have her and her son come to live with him, she was riddled with cancer. But they didn't know it yet, so they had very little time together. And then he had to go through this process of her dying just as he dared to jump. And uh, he wrote this thing, Why Love? when it hurts so much to lose it. And this whole essay he wrote was about that question. You know, it's like, 
And he just felt that that whole process taught him about what love really is and how, like, grateful he was that he was willing to jump. And I know that for myself there are times when, you know, it's so easy, like, if you get hurt in some way in life that you want to just close up and say, well, then I'm not, <laughs> not going to connect anymore. And it's like, even if we think our, of our relationship with the planet, it's easy to say, well, maybe it's just going to blow up. But if you care about it, then you, you find that balance um, of care, but healthy non-attachment. And, you know, it's so much easier if you can come down one side or the other. You know, so many of us, again, wanna, we want to say, okay, love tells me I'm nothing, and we don't want to deal with wisdom tells me I'm nothing, but then the love will become control. It, look at it, your, just look at your own life, look at your practice. It's like when we're mad because we've made all this effort and we're attached to the result of the effort, that's control. And if you do any kind of work that is um, trying to be helpful in some way, it's that's the hardest because you let yourself care and then you work hard at something and you have to be willing to see that it's that care itself and the willingness to act on the care that matters, not the result of the effort. So remembering that, where are we? Um, if we can appreciate that there is this, there are lots of hidden things to us, but one of the hidden things to us is this care. So we worry because we care. We get angry because we care. We eat because we care. We get sad because we care. But we tend to get caught up in the object of it. So if we get caught up in the object of our desire, we get caught up in the op- we get caught up in the object of our fear. We get caught up in the object of whatever aversion. We're not taking responsibility for experiencing what's happening. And if we pull back from the projection. And we can just go, oh, oh, I'm afraid. <laughs> we let ourselves be vulnerable and just be interested in the experience of the fear, like we might be interested in um, a deer. You know, that we might get interested in anything, our body. Just like if you have something out there that you get really interested in, then see if you can be interested in something in yourself in the same way that you have a block with, because it'll be the same thing. I was teaching a retreat in the south of the Big Island some years ago, um, and the people who organized the retreat rented a, like a big vacation, no, not that big, a vacation rental, um, and didn't know that the neighbor who owned all the land around this place didn't want this to happen. There was no communication. Um, and when the retreat started, they pilled, they picked, two pickup trucks came on either side of this place on the other land and blasted music, just really kind of angry music, like 
at the retreat all day at night for days. And so I think it was a six-day retreat. And the second day, during the question and answer period, somebody raised their hand and said, Michelle, the mindfulness isn't working. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way? Or if it's not, the method's not working, mindfulness isn't working. And this is, when you feel that way, it's very important to kind of ask, well, what, what am I relating to? What am I applying it to? And is it really what's really happening? Because in that case, this, this woman was trying to bring her attention to the sound and the unpleasantness of it and was really missing that the predominant thing that was happening was rage. But it was hidden. You know, it was like like a mild... And then I asked her, well, what's really going on? And she's like, well, well maybe I dislike it. And I'm like, dislike it? I mean, it was horrible, you know? <laughs> it's like, dislike it? Are you kidding? And I said, how about, let's go up to annoyance, frustration, irritation, aversion. Ah, oh, it's anger. But she was never allowed to be angry. So how could, you know, she couldn't, she had to keep going to the sound. And it, it's like, oh, so of course the mindfulness isn't working. Let's try, what do you do when something's really painful? You can't be with it. Compassion. So, you know, you try to be with the unpleasant, you try to be with the texture. Then if it's a mind state of not liking it, you shift to trying to be with the mind state of not liking it. You, you attempt to feel the corresponding physical sensations in the body that are usually contracting. There's usually heat. There's usually tightness. Um, and then compassion, as Steve said, I'm ending with where Steve left off with his, re- with his talk last night, that it's actually pleasant. And you can tell the awareness um, is pleasant. Now, hopefully... We all learn what this is because it's like being given all the gold in the world. When you learn that, you know, there's so much pain in this world, there's a lot of joy, so the next Brahma-vihara is empathetic joy, so it's, it's tuning into all the joy in the world and appreciating it. Compassion is tuning into the pain and caring about it. So the practice, it's, it takes practice because it's easy. If you connect with pain... The tendency is to fall into grief, sorrow, or self-pity, or pity, or to fall into cruelty or moving away from it. Uh, So there has to be a willingness to experience those. Just like with metta and loving-kindness, there has to be a willingness to feel attached love and to feel controlling with it. There has to be a willingness to feel anger and to learn to work with those if you're going to do the practice. It'll be sometimes we'll feel the genuineness of it, but also good practice is being willing to feel (coughs) what it isn't and learn how to relate to it. And with compassion, how I like to explain working with it is to pick something that isn't so difficult that you drown or you have to get indifferent and numb out and move away. Um, So an example I often give is say my hand was felt like a posse bloody mess and uh, somebody walked in the room and and said oh (laughs) and uh, pretend that they're connected but I can feel that they're 
moving away. You're like, oh, that's nice, you know, it'd be bad, that must feel bad, you know. But you can tell the person is totally disconnected. That's okay. No, you know, see, we don't have to judge the indifference or the, the disconnect from it, but it isn't compassion. That's, this is what you start to see. And we do that. We numb out, we move away. If you see yourself doing it, numbing out is an emotion, and it's, it's like you just explore it, like you'd explore the sound of a bird. Or looking at a beautiful um, flower. And then somebody might walk in the room and uh, connect with the pain, and they go, "Oh, isn't that sad and terrible?" And, you know, I'll exaggerate, fall on the floor crying. Not exactly compassion, right? It's grief. It's sorrow. Totally okay. Again, you, the person connected with the pain and drowned in it. You can either step back and not feel it, right? There's different ways you can work with pain. And then there's the ability, say my hand is not metta but compassion, very similar, but it's the ability to connect with the pain and care about it. And it feels wonderful. It feels good to care about pain. It's a practice. It's not like, we all think we're either born with it or we're not. But it isn't like that. It's something that you actually start to practice. And you you might get a glimpse of, oh, you know, it'll... Usually there's, like, a very quiet... It's not um, cathartic. It's often a very quiet shift of, like, mm. <laughs> It's like you can feel this, mm, quiet. And then three seconds later, it could be indifference or it could be grief. That's okay. You practiced it a bit. And so, of course, in a day of sitting, in a day of walking, in a day of eating, there will be maybe painful thoughts, emotions, um, body sensations. And sometimes just try this. It's just that it's, it's, it's metta, but with a compassionate flavor. And it's another skill that we have in practice that we practice. taught that the approximate cause for the appearance of compassion is um, being aware of the helplessness and overwhelm we feel in the face of suffering. So if you feel helpless or overwhelmed by suffering in the world, whether outwardly or inwardly, it's a good thing. It's like, it's like when you start to feel that overwhelm, then it's like, oh, there's something I can learn here. Oh, compassion. It wakes us up. And this process of um, coming to terms with love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, 
and uh, developing a taste for <coughs> the truth of um, vulnerability as opposed to the defense of um, aversion and attachment. It takes great patience. When I was walking into the kitchen today, there was a leaf. I wasn't sure somebody put it there or not, but there was a leaf with a cocoon on it. And um, I think modern, modern humans tend to have more difficulty with patience. And I think that very modern people tend to even have more of a difficulty with patience because you just, like, look at the computers now delete, 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 you know, like Google, you know, it's just like, it's so fast, you know, it's like my cell phone just can't go fast enough, it, you know, I send it, sometimes I'm sending it, and it's, I'm like, wow, it's taking so long to send, you know, that's amazing how, that's amazing, you know, when you think about it, um, and uh, so it's interesting to, to see that, um, I did many years of sitting with the Saito Upandita. Um, and sometimes he would just give me one instruction and it, it would be a month. A month. And I'd come in for every day and I'd see him. And I'd just like kind of want some tidbit of like either you're doing okay, you're not doing okay, whatever. And he would just say, digest this next interview digest this next interview digest this a month that you know seemed like a really long time if you think about like a caterpillar that just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and eats they're digesting right and then a, a cocoon it's just like if you, it's just like most of us modern people do not like the cocoon phase. And we can all tell ourselves, oh yeah, you know, it's like, you know, it'll kill the cocoon if you get involved in it and you open it up and the wings won't be strong enough to fly, right? We can know this intellectually, but when we're in a cocoon place, it's hard to be patient. And yet we know that we, if you look at a day of practice or a 10-day retreat or our life, there are the times when we feel like we're flying and there are times when we feel like the grub or the caterpillar and then other times we feel like we're in the cocoon our practice is like that a day of practice is like that and then a 10 day retreat is like there'll be times where it will feel fallow Uh, And at those times when we're impatient, we're not so interested in the impatient. And that's the key, is, is to start learning how to get interested in that experience of impatience. And it's that 
trusting again, you know, that trusting that um, when we get impatient and we try to figure things out intellectually or we get mad uh, or we try to use our willpower to force it in the spiritual world, in this case, it doesn't work. So that this process is foolproof. It's really foolproof. Only genuine metta um, allows for metta and only genuine Wisdom allows for wisdom. It's like it, it really, anything else is just what it is. It's like you learn how to be with it, but you know the difference between fake equanimity and equanimity. You know the difference between attached love and love. You start, you know, and other people do too over time. So I'd like to end with um, Thoreau, Henry David. It's a um, from one of his journals. Nature never makes haste. Her systems resolve at an even pace. The bud swells imperceptibly, without hurry or confusion, as though the short spring days were an eternity Wise people are restful, never restless and impatient. We each moment abide there where we are, as some walkers actually rest the whole body at each step, while others never relax the muscles of the leg till the accumulated fatigue obliges them to stop short. Since we're part of nature, it's very important to remember nature never makes haste. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.